Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 12, reading verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, God, we ask for your help. It is only in your light that we see and behold light. And so we ask that you would teach us and guide us in your way today. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a young parent, I remember the first time that Melissa and I went away, that we left our two young boys with my mother-in-law. It was to celebrate our sixth wedding anniversary. We'd saved up our frequent flyer miles for several years. We scratched together as much money as we could, and we planned a getaway very elatedly. Like most young parents, we were freaking out about leaving our kids for the first time. Before we left, there was a barrage of instructions and commands, information and advice, phone numbers and contacts, for my mother-in-law so that she could have a successful stay with our two angelic blonde little devils. (laughs) It was the staccato amount of information as we leave the house that was perhaps so impressive, disjointed, reflecting our anxieties and worries. And these verses in Romans 12 can feel somewhat like that. It can feel like Paul is on the way out the door and he's doorknobbing us, hanging on, giving us all the things that he really wanted to say, some last-minute advice. Because across this short section, even as we read it this morning, you'll note that there was short, staccato-like commandments. There's little elaboration given to each of those, and there seems to be fairly loose connections between what is said. However, this is the really important and critical thing for us this morning as we look at that section, is that we have to remember that this portion of Romans 12, what is happening is that Paul is telling us what it means to offer ourselves as a living and a holy sacrifice to God, what it means to be a person whose mind has been renewed by the grace of God. We don't do this. We don't walk in these commandments so that we can save ourselves and put a claim on God to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves good enough. No, but rather as we've seen through the course of Romans is that we are all in the dock and we've all been condemned in front of God, but then then God has interceded. He has intersected our lives and he's granted us grace in Jesus that he would forgive our sins and he would renew us by his spirit And now we have the privilege and the freedom of offering ourselves to God in response to that great gift of grace. And so now, in chapters 12 through 16, we see what it looks like to turn away from ourselves and to turn and yield ourselves to God, 
to offer ourselves to him in his service. And so these staccato-like commands are part of that overall service to frame that and to help us understand it. And there's three areas in these short, uh, these short verses that Paul focuses. First, he's going to focus on our love. Second, on our service to God. And finally, on our hope. And so we'll look at each this morning. First, in verse 9, we see that he focuses on our love, and we learn there that our love is to be genuine. This means, of course, that we've been brought into a family, and there, is, there are two great truths to the gospel. And the first is that we've been adopted as sons and daughters, and this leads to a vertical reality for you and for me. That we've been adopted through the true son, Jesus, who stood in our place, paying our debt on the cross for our sins, and he has been raised. And now in him we are counted righteous, that our sins are no longer counted against us, and we have right standing with God. And this is the vertical reality that we are now free to commune with God and to walk with him. But that vertical reality then gives way to a horizontal reality as well. And that means that we're brought into an earthly fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters who also participate in all the fall of sin and all the brokenness of humanity, but who also share these fundamental beliefs and convictions about Jesus and the grace of God and what God has done in our lives. And it's into this fellowship, that messy communion of sinful human beings in one body, that fellowship that Paul says these words, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And then in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so we see that this love that is to exist inside of the Christian community is to be genuine. That is, it is not to be counterfeit. In his commentary on these verses, John Calvin reminds us that it's difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. They deceive not only others, but also themselves. And this is Calvin getting to the heart of it as a pastor, not simply as a theologian, but as a pastor of people, that the genuine side of this is what is so difficult, that we can perceive ourselves to be loving, and yet we can just be counterfeits, that it can be a superficial love, that it's not a genuine love. And so what exactly is it that defines the genuineness of our love. Paul fills this out for us in the rest of the passage. If you look at the second half of verse 9, we see that it is to hate what is evil and to hold to what is good. And this simply means that what we are to do in love for one another in our Christian community is that we're to avoid what harms our neighbor and we are to act in their interest we are to pursue what is for their good. He takes us further in the next verse. 
We're to show brotherly affection, he says, and we're to outdo one another in showing honor. That is, we are to recognize with honor and affection those who belong to Jesus, that we don't recognize other distinctions in our midst, that we don't evaluate one another according to class or color or anything like this, that we evaluate one another on the basis of creed, and that someone who professes faith in Jesus receives honor and affection. We don't get to define who gets that affection and who gets that honor. God doesn't give us permission to do that. It belongs to everyone that Jesus vouches for. And so we're to extend that same welcome. And in verse 13, we find that this genuine love also involves being generous towards the needs of others in our community. And this often, this also most likely included the offering that was going to Jerusalem that Paul was uh, busy collecting in his missionary journeys, contributing to the needs of the impoverished saints around the, the Roman Empire there. And it's also a seeking to show hospitality. It's important to remember that these were the days before hotels. And there was a massive number of immigrants also coming back into Rome. The, the Jews had been forbidden. They were kicked out of the city. But now Paul writes into a church where the Jewish community was allowed back in. And so many of the early Jewish Christians were coming back in. And that forms the conflict between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians that we find underneath the book of Romans. And so they are to be hospitable to one another regarding one another, not as Jew and Gentile, but fellow brother and sister in Jesus. And what we're told here is that our bank accounts and our homes and our hearts, that they're not our own, that they belong to God and therefore belong to his family. And this is the point of it, that genuine love is to be concrete. It is to be non-selective and it is to be demonstrated and embodied. Its fundamental cue is nothing less than the love of God that's been given to us in Jesus and his laying down his life. And it is God's call on you and me to love one another genuinely in this way. Now this isn't easy. It would be easier to end the point of the sermon and move to the next at this point. But it isn't easy for two reasons. First, it isn't easy because we're asked to love others who, like ourselves, are far from finished products. We come out of that smoking mass of humanity who's participated in Adam's shame, and we're not fixed. We're not complete. We have our prickly points. We have all of our faults and our failures. It wasn't easy in the first century church, and there's no reason to be romantic about it. Jews and Gentiles did not like one another. We've seen that there are superiority complexes. The Gentiles felt like they were better than the Jews. The Jews felt like they were better than the Gentiles. They had had years of different leadership in the churches that they've been involved in, and now they were being rammed into this home fellowship, and it was a mess. But God doesn't ask how we psychologically feel about one another. He doesn't allow you to decide whether you will love your fellow Christian based on how you feel. 
No, the commandment calls us to regard one another on one basis and is the basis of our fellow standing in Jesus. And for everyone who has that standing in Jesus, in this concrete place, within these walls, these people, we are to love. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. We're to have brotherly affection. And our remaining sinfulness makes it difficult. But second, it also isn't easy because of your and because of my selfishness. Because our culture disposes us to think a certain way about this. And it's perhaps the reverse of the biblical command. We tend to reflect this way. First, on how we are being loved. And then if we feel loved, and really if we feel accepted and psychologically affirmed, then we will perhaps be loving towards those around us. We enter into communities to be served, and then we will contemplate serving on the other side of that. And friends, we don't have permission for that very subtle shift that takes place. God doesn't tell us to operate that way. He gives us the inconvenient command that we are to come to the Christian fellowship with those who believe in all their faults and failures and all their weaknesses that they inhabit, and we are to lay down our lives in service and love for one another. This is what it means to be genuine in our love. But second, in verse 11, we see that Paul transitions to another topic, and we see that our service of God is to be fervent. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And here Paul acknowledges a dynamic that all of us are familiar with. Each of us who have walked with God for any amount of time are familiar with what he is addressing. Because the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And it can have a certain monotony to it. And there are seasons in which we struggle and we experience all of our weakness. And we get fatigued and we become weary on the way. There are so many difficulties and so many obstacles that confront us. There are the events of life, like the death of a loved one, an untimely diagnosis, a rebellious child, or a pandemic that are simply events that are outside of our control. And yet they put tremendous weight on us and they're discouraging and it impacts our relationship with God and we feel weariness from it. There are then the relational tensions and struggles that we all experience with fellow Christians and the struggles we experience in our families. In all of our relationships, we have duplicity and we have betrayals. We have disappointments and we see hypocrisy we see the failure for people to be genuine, and it is all incredibly wearying. And there's the weakness that you and I inhabit. Our struggle with sin and the shame that adds up because of that struggle, it accumulates on us and it builds up and it wearies us. And so we all experience that fatigue Every one of us is subject to it, that no one remains equally fervent all the time. 
My yard is like most Florida yards. I have St. Augustine grass, and this year has been a bumper year. The areas that were dying last year and were patchy and spotty have grown in and filled in. It's no genius of mine. It's simply because we've had rain, lots of rain. Nearly every day we have had downpours soaking the grass, even the trail that my dog has neatly cut into our backyard that looks like a trench is now growing back in with grass. It's been incredible. I could get yard of the month, perhaps. No fault of my own. But several weeks ago, as I was cutting the grass, I noticed that it hadn't grown as much that week. And as I was walking across, I began to hear a familiar sound from years past, but it was that brittle crunch. I turned off my sprinkler system, and so I didn't want to spend the money this year, but that week, we had had less rain. And that grass began to almost immediately, in the heat of August, dry out. And I was thinking to myself, how could this possibly be? We just had downpours the week before. The grass was lush and green, and then inside of two withering afternoons, it was already drying out. The explanation is fairly simple. It's just that the soil in Florida is fairly sandy. And so water runs through it. It's not held and retained. It provides life to what is there, but then it's gone. And the soil then heats up and things dry out quickly. We know this for those of you who manage yards. And so the grass can go from healthy and lush to dry and dead very quickly. And friends, this is the way that our souls also operate. We're often planted in something like sandy soil, where the nutrients sometimes don't last long, and it doesn't retain the water, and we can become fatigued and weary and dry very quickly. And Paul says to this, be fervent in spirit. Because friends, the reality for us is that we all experience spiritual weariness. It's a real part of the Christian life. And so the judgment is not on whether you experience that weariness or not, but it is whether you know what to do in the middle of that dryness, in the middle of that drought, in the middle of that weariness. And we have to hear God's word to us, be fervent in spirit. Now there's a couple of things about that phrase that are important to clarify. First, in the original, the word fervent there means it's used in several different ways. But it's typically used in such a way where you're bringing something to boil so as to heat something up. Or it's to heat something up in order to catch it on fire. And this is the meaning of the word fervent here, is that we are to be caught on fire in spirit. Now, you'll see that the ESV gives this a lowercase s, and then down in the margin, they give you a capital case s. They were right down in the margin. Be fervent in the Holy Spirit. Be caught on fire by the Holy Spirit is what the apostle is communicating. And so we are to allow, to not get in the way, to not hinder the Spirit from kindling and boiling us and renewing us. 
And it is in those times of weariness, fatigue, and discouragement that this is what we have to recognize, that the Spirit is ready and able, and He stands to ignite us, to, to boil us up, that we be fervent in Him. And our job is not to hinder His work and to get in His way. We're prone to stifle and extinguish the Spirit, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. We do so by our own fault. And so we have to be honest in those searching conversations with God. When we feel that drought and we feel that weariness, we have to ask him to make it plain to us where we are in the way, how we are actually impeding the spirit from boiling us up and lighting us on fire. Several years ago, I remember hitting one of those moments in which there was just spiritual flatness and despondency difficulty and rigor. I was spiritually lethargic. There was trouble from the outside. There was trouble within. And one morning I found myself reading Psalm 35 and I came to verse 3. And there David cries out to God and he says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. And suddenly it hit me. This is what I need. I didn't need a technique to fix it. I needed to say to God, you are my salvation in the midst of all this trouble that's pressing me from without, that's coming up from within. All the difficulty being experienced here that makes me feel like a dry tree, a dying yard. God, say to my soul, I am your salvation. And it was in that encounter and in that moment that something began to break that I began to see the ways that I was in the way, the ways that I was quenching and holding back the flames of the Spirit and that I was keeping God from his work in my life. And even though God had turned me to yield myself to him, I was turning back to myself. And it was there in confessing that God was my defender, that God was my shield, that God was my righteousness. I was then able to say, God, forgive me for the ways in which I've gone and sought comfort in all other things. Be my defense. Be my comfort. And friends, this is what it looks like, an honest and engaging and rigorous relationship with God in which we can be clear with him where we are and ask him to give us that fervency to light us on fire in his spirit, to renew us again and again. And then in verse 12, we see the final thing that Paul says here in these verses. He exhorts us that our hope is also to be active. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. It is in all the weariness and the fatigue of the Christian life and all of our fears and all of our uncertainties that there is to be one overriding and dominant characteristic that is to characterize your faith and your life in God, and that is hope. And this hope, as we've seen in Romans 8, is not just a well-wishing for a better next week. 
It's not just saying that, yes, there's a silver lining inside this cloud and things will get better next month. It's not a sentiment. No, this hope that Paul speaks of here, the hope that we are supposed to rejoice in, is the strong conviction of what God does when Jesus returns. That God, in raising Jesus from the dead, coming out of death, the, the curse of sin has been canceled. And now God will send Jesus back to the world, and Jesus will come, and he will bring those same powers of resurrection to all the ends of the earth. That all his family who believes and trusts in him will be raised as well. And that creation will be set free from its futility and from its vanity. And it will rise to rejoice in the resurrection of the sons of God, he tells us in Romans 8. This is the firm conviction of Christian hope. The great end of all things. And it is this hope that we are to fix our eyes on and to rejoice in, in the midst of our own tribulations. And it is that hope that then tempers our tribulations and grants us a certain patience inside of them. And friends, the tribulations are real. They're profound. The news that we hear week in and week out regarding our personal health or situations in the world, there's so much to grieve and it's all so overwhelming. But in the middle of all of that tribulation and all of that sadness and all of that lament, there's this overriding note of Christian hope. Because Jesus is up from the dead, he will certainly return and he will come to make all things right and all things new. And so that teaches us patience. And we train that patience then in prayer where we bring all the sad things, where we bring all the griefs, where we bring all our laments, all of our pain, all of our disappointment, and we bring that to God, and we allow him to transform that into hope. And so three somewhat disconnected things that Paul sees as extremely important for us that as we offer ourselves to God, because of his grace and his activity in our lives, that our love would be genuine, concrete, displayed, demonstrated, not in some ideal church of your mind, but here, in this place, with real people and real thoughts, that our service would be fervent, that we would look to God in all of our weariness and fatigue, and that he would cause us to be lit on fire in the spirit, and we would trust him again and again to do that, and also that our hope would be active. That is, that we would train our minds on the great renewal of all things, that our best life is not next week or next month, that our best life and our great hope is the restoration and the renewal of everything. That trains us in patience. And we train that patience in prayer. And so friends, what can seem inconsequential is central for you offering yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Let's ask for his help to do so.
Father, we confess all of our weakness, our selfishness that inclines us to love ourselves and to pursue our own interest over those of others. Help us. We confess our weariness and fatigue, all the things that keep us from being fervent in your spirit. Help us to lay aside those things. Renew us in the gospel. Remind us of your great love. Say to our souls, I am your salvation. And God, we ask that you would train us in hope that we would know what it is to constantly fix our eyes on greater things than the things that surround us, that we would have clear vision and sight of what will happen when Jesus returns, that you will wipe away every tear, that the sad things will no longer be true, that creation will rejoice and shout for joy at the resurrection of the sons and daughters of God. Stir up these things in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.